Mark 13. I've told you everything in advance. Mark 13, we are going to look at the second coming of Jesus Christ and look at things related to his second coming as we move through the Gospel of Mark. This is where we are as we've been going verse by verse through the Gospel. We've come to Mark 13. Mark 13 is a parallel along with Luke 21 and Matthew 24. These three chapters make up what's called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is a big way of saying it's a sermon that was delivered by Jesus as he sat on the Mount of Olives. Interesting location when he gave the sermon. The Mount of Olives is to the east of the current Temple Mount. If you look from the east and you look towards the Mount, the, you're on the east, you look towards the Temple Mount, it's a great view. It's, it's quite an exhilarating view and it's down that, that road that Jesus made his triumphal entry. When Jesus made his triumphal entry, he gave a prophecy. It's recorded in Luke 1944. He wept over the city, even though they were celebrating him as blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He wept over the city because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. And he said, he, he made a prophecy in Luke 1944, and he said that not one stone would be left upon another that would not be thrown down. It's a staggering prophecy especially in light of what he was talking about. He was talking about the temple precincts that actually made up one-sixth of the old city of Jerusalem. If you've been watching the news, Israel's on fire right now. There's all kinds of fires. Something like 250 fires, I guess, that have been set in Israel. The Israeli fire department's trying to deal with it. Israel, uh, we're told in the book of Zechariah, will become a cup of trembling for all the nations Anybody who's ever studied prophecy, if you consider yourself a prophecy buff, this will be a message for you. Because we're going to talk about predictive prophecy. We're going to talk about the end times, the city of Jerusalem, and the famous words that Jesus shared in these three sections. They're all, they all parallel each other. They're, they're the same uh, uh, sermon that's given with just a little bit of different variation. And let's, uh, let's pray before we do anything further. Father, we come before you right now. Um, as a people hungry to hear from you, help me to get out of your way so that you might speak. Your word is alive and it's profitable. Every portion of it, every part of it, profits the believer, edifies and exhorts. And Lord, we want to have ears to hear what you have to say. We want to discern the times and we also want to discern the scriptures. We don't want to just say that we're newspaper theologians or those who study eschatology just by the newspaper. We want to let the Bible speak. But we certainly look at current events and they pique our interest as well, just thinking about the things that regard the last days. But all in all, Father, what we want to say right now is just help us as we study your word. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind that's ready to receive what you have to say to us. And I pray that in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Behold, I've told you everything in advance. One of the remarkable things about the Bible, among many things that we could talk about, is predictive prophecy. Now, prophecy is a word that has two primary meanings. Prophecy means to speak forth the word of God. So you could say it is forthtelling. But prophecy also has a unique aspect in Scripture, which is foretelling. This is what we call predictive prophecy. 
The Old Testament is filled with predictions, predictions that have to do with the fall of nations and have to do with Israel and surrounding nations. And the Old Testament is filled with what's called messianic prophecy. That is prophecy written sometimes 500, as much as a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, predicting his birthplace. Micah 5.2 said he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah writes 700 years before Jesus was born. The book of Isaiah is filled with prophecies about Jesus. Isaiah 7.14 says that he will be born of a virgin. That pretty much narrows the, 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 uh, the people who could qualify for the Messiah. You'll look for a woman who has never known a man to have a baby. That's pretty specific. But there's another interesting aspect about prophecy that we need to understand, and it's this. Sometimes prophecies have dual fulfillments. An example I just gave is Isaiah 7.14. It said that Emmanuel, this one Emmanuel, would be born of a virgin. But in the immediate lifetime of the prophet Isaiah, there was a child that's talked about in the very next verse. And some of that, those words, are fulfilled in his lifetime, in the immediate life of the prophet and his wife and his family. However, Matthew picks up the idea of Emmanuel in Matthew 1, verses 21 through 23, and calls Jesus Emmanuel and says he will be born of a virgin. The Bible has many instances which have dual fulfillment. This is going to be relevant to the Olivet Discourse, or the words of Jesus in Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24, because I believe what we're going to see in this sermon is a dual fulfillment. Some of the things that Jesus talks about, there's no doubt, happen in the lifetime of the apostles, and primarily at the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, but there's going to be other things that look well beyond the time period of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and look to the future, even our future. And we'll talk about that in a moment. As we look at the dual fulfillment of prophecy, we can see this, for example, in another place in Psalm 22. David wrote Psalm 22, and some of that psalm has to do with David's immediate lifetime. David suffered many things. He was harassed by Saul. He was chased by enemies. His life was threatened. Yet Psalm 22 is ultimately a prophecy about Jesus on the cross. And we can see those, those specific things like they would pierce my hands and my feet. They would wag their heads at me and so forth. All of this applies to David in his immediate lifetime, at least some of it. And to Jesus, ultimately, Psalm 22 is an example. Here's another one. David was told in 2 Samuel 7, you can write down verses 9 through 16, that his son would have a throne forever. Now, the one that sat on David's throne that followed him in the reign of uh, Israel is Solomon. David's son Solomon sat on his throne. But David was promised in this famous section where it promises that the, his throne will be upheld forever, that his son would sit on his throne and that throne would last forever. In Luke 1, 32 and 33, if you're taking notes, it says that Jesus fulfills that. He's the greater David, the son of David, and his throne will last forever. So in the immediate lifetime of David, there was a fulfillment of Solomon, but there's an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Now what's extremely relevant in dual fulfillment to our subject matter is something called the day of the Lord. If you have a concordance or you like to search out concepts or words in the Bible, type in the day of the Lord. You will see this mentioned scores of times in the Old and New Testament. 
The day of the Lord is seen by scholars as a day when Yahweh judges and rescues his people. And oftentimes the day of the Lord is depicted in what's called ancient fulfillments. Here's an example in the book of Joel. The book of Joel is all about the day of the Lord. There was a locust plague that happened in the time of Joel. It was a thick locust plague. It's recorded in Joel chapter 1. And it devastated the land and there was darkness and devastation and it was called the day of the Lord. One writer calls the locust plague in the book of Joel the day of the Lord in embryo. A foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord when God will come, Jesus will come and he will judge the world Rescue his people and judge the world. So those were foreshadowings. The book of Joel, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, many other scriptures I could give you. But there's another place there's the, where there's a foreshadowing of the day of the Lord, and it's this. It's found in the plagues of Egypt. How many plagues happened to Egypt? Ten plagues. The ninth plague was the plague of darkness. It was dark three days in Egypt. In Goshen it was light, but it was dark there. And it was a darkness, the Bible describes in the book of Exodus, as a darkness that people could feel. Nobody moved. It was just a terrifying darkness. And that darkness was the ninth plague, preceding the tenth plague. The tenth plague was what, Bible students? The death of the firstborn. And the Israelites were told, put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost and your lentil, put it on your door, and I'm going to pass over Egypt, God says that night, and if I see the blood, I will not judge that household. And in Egypt, there wasn't one house where somebody wasn't dead. God did judge the Egyptians, but if you had the blood applied to your door, the Lord passed over you. He didn't judge. There's another Passover coming, call it a second Passover, where the Lord Jesus is coming again. And he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And the ones who will not be judged are the ones who have the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, applied to their household. Interesting, when you applied the blood in the ancient days, they would do this on the two side posts. They'd apply the blood and they'd put it on the top of the door. And it's been remarked that it would make a sign of the cross. This is how predictive prophecy often works. Not always. Sometimes it just has a single fulfillment. But oftentimes in the Bible, predictive prophecy is so amazing that it's fulfilled on several levels. Now I'm introducing the message this way so that you can understand that there's a debate going on. And if you run in any of these circles, you study this stuff, here's what the debate is. People who look at Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 and the other sections I've mentioned to you, some are arguing that it's already been fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That none of Jesus' words have any relevance to a modern-day audience. That they've all been fulfilled, and they're called extreme preterists. And let me just define the word preterism. And you might be saying, Pastor Michael, all these big words, hang with me now. Preterism simply means past. So a preterist believes that the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in the past. I don't know why theologians are always coming up with big words. Why don't we just say past? We can say preterism. All right? Okay, so here's what they say. Now, there are some preterists that hold that much of Jesus' sermon from the Mount of Olives was fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, but not all of it. And they will apply portions to the future. And then there are some people that think it's largely towards the future. I will tell you, I believe it's both. 
I believe that there was a fulfillment in the immediate lifetime of the apostles of Jesus' words in this final sermon. And by the way, this is the final sermon that he delivers before we have what's called the upper room messages or discourses. So this forms a bridge. This famous sermon in three of the Gospels forms a bridge from his time in the temple until he finally goes through the night of the Passover and then his betrayal and all of that. So this is kind of like his final sermon. It's a very important sermon. It's a sermon that's been studied by multitudes of people, broken down, analyzed, and you name it. Now the preterist group says this. They say that there's no New Testament book that can be dated beyond 70 A.D. The reason that they say that is because you can't have the book of Revelation, which they believe is fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem. So let me just be clear. Preterists believe that Revelation pretty much, not not as in totality, but pretty much was fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So they take, you know, much of the language there as apocalyptic, sometimes hyperbole, extreme language, but it's all fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And they would say the book of Revelation even has really no future concern of ours. Now that, that may be, this may be the first time that you're hearing this. So they have to say that Revelation has to be dated before 70. And they really have to say it's got to be dated between AD 65, 66 to allow for other things to occur. The traditional dating of the book of Revelation has been 95 AD, 25 years after the fall of Jerusalem. Many conservative scholars hold this date. And this date would be during the reign of Domitian. Now, I want to just explain this so... If you guys run into this, you'll know what the evidence is. There's a reference in a church father called Irenaeus. The reference comes from about 180 A.D. And he says that John wrote the Revelation from the island of Patmos around 95 or during the latter half or the end of Domitian's reign. Domitian did not reign before 70 A.D. So... The people who hold the late date say it happened during, he wrote it during Domitian's reign, Roman emperor. The folks that want the earlier date say that Revelation was written during the reign of Caesar Nero. And that Nero is the beast and he was a wild man and he did a lot of crazy things. In fact, the apostle Paul was killed during the reign of Nero. And so this is where the debate happens. And while I'll say that there are some interesting things that are brought out by preterists that I think we need to pay attention to. I think that they've kind of taken, in many cases, an extreme view of this section and they ignore what I believe are future fulfillments to Jesus' words. So behold, I've told you everything in advance. I'm talking now about predictive prophecy. Why should you care about predictive prophecy? Some of you may be thinking, I, don't, I could care less. You know, I'm not a... I'm not a a pre-tribber, a post-tribber, I'm a pan-tribber. <laughs> However it all pans out, I don't care, right? <laughs> well, you know, I can understand why some people take that position. And just so you know, we're a church that holds a pre-millennial view. What does that mean? Here's what, here's what we believe. We believe that there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ. That's the word millennium, thousand, millennial. And that Jesus will appear at his second coming pre-millennial, before the thousand years. We believe he'll set up his kingdom. We believe there's going to be a golden age. We believe Isaiah 2 and 11 with the, with the lion and the, the wolf and the lamb and the, and the 
child playing by the hole of the cobra and there's peace. Uh, and here's the deal. When we think about the second coming, here's what the second coming means to me personally and practically. It means hope. That my God didn't just say, okay, good luck humans. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I wound up the universe. I made you and good luck. No, he entered time and space in the time that we call Christmas and died for our sins and rose to defeat death and he's coming again. He has not left us all alone. Aren't you glad? This world can be a crazy and lonely place. And Jesus says, I'm coming again. I've gone to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's the second coming. It's hope that everything that I see that's wrong is going to be made right again. That there is going to be a time when Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem and things that were, have been devastated by the sin of mankind will be made right again. That's what the second coming means to me. I don't just study the second coming so I can spout facts about, you know, history or eschatology. By the way, if you hear eschatology, it comes from a word eschatos, meaning the study of the last things or the end times. So if you hear somebody say, I'm into eschatology, man, <laughs> then that's what they're saying. They like studying prophecy. And the Bible is filled with prophecy. And interestingly enough, the New Testament has prophecy as well. In fact, Jesus' words in Mark 13 are a prophecy. There's such an incredible prophecy that they were fulfilled largely, not all, but a large part was fulfilled in 70 A.D. to the T. Jesus died around 30 to 33 A.D. He predicted the fall of Jerusalem 40 years before it happened, proving who he is, that he's God, that he can predict the future with wholehearted certainty. Now, the New Testament does teach the second coming of Jesus, and I told first service, I'm not sure how many verses I will get through. This is going to be a sermon done in parts because there's 37 verses in Mark 13, and I haven't done one of them yet. <laughs> Amen? So I won't keep you here all afternoon, but I, I will introduce the subject, and I got to verse 14 at first service, and so that's what I hope to accomplish this morning. But I want to introduce the subject of the second coming because there are some people who, you know, in, on extreme preterist circles, they don't even believe in a literal second coming anymore. They're dismissing that Jesus is literally coming again. Does the Bible teach that? Let's turn to the book of Acts, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 1. Jesus has spent 40 days talking to the, the apostles about the kingdom of God. Uh, 40 days after his resurrection, he appeared with many convincing proofs, he presented himself alive. That's what Luke tells us in Acts 1-3. And so they had questions for him, and uh, he gathered them together. And in verse 7 of Acts 1, just to get to the main point of this particular sermon, Acts 1-7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus will say in the Olivet Discourse that no one knows the time of his coming, not even the angels or the sun. I think Jesus knows them in his divine nature, but it's been argued that in his human nature, perhaps he didn't know. And so they've been asking, they say, verse 6, Acts 1, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Are we entering into the golden age? Are you going to sit on David's throne? That's their question. 
And he said, it's not for you to know the times, verse 7, or season or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. This is called the ascension. And a cloud received him out of their sight. We believe that's a glory cloud, not a rain cloud. And as they were gazing intently, you could imagine this experience. The apostles watch him get lifted up. He's resurrected. He's bearing the scars of the cross. He's very human. And he's all of a sudden raised up, lifted up, verse 9, while they're looking. How big would your mouth be open as you, oh, right? And they watched him. He was lifted up while they were looking on. A cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. How did he go into heaven? In a physical, resurrected body, received by a glory cloud, and he's coming back in the same way. And where he delivered the sermon from is where he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, which is what the book of Zechariah teaches us. And that mountain is going to go through a uh, recreation. It's going to split. Okay? So this is what the Bible teaches. God has fixed this day. They were wondering about the day. God has fixed the day. If you keep going in your Bible and go to uh, 1 Thessalonians, go to your right, 1 Thessalonians. I just want to show you a few of the verses that teach the second coming of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, if you look at verse uh, 16, the people had questions about how this all worked, and some of the people were dying in the church, and they wondered, well, did they miss the rapture, or what's going on? And Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven, with a shout, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Notice it says the Lord himself will descend from heaven. It will be the Lord himself. He is coming again. Then we who are alive, verse 17, and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. I think the glory clouds there. To meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Here's the point of the teaching Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If you go to 2 Thessalonians, this is the next book to your right. Look at chapter 2. The subject is the man of lawlessness. Many uh, equate him with the Antichrist of a future day. Paul's talking about him. He calls him the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. The son of destruction. Talks about him taking his seat in the temple of God and raising himself up. Uh, he wants worship is basically the way you'd say it. Here's what it says. It says, And then that lawless one, verse 8, 2 Thessalonians 2, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by what? The appearing of his coming. Jesus Christ is coming again. Keep going to your right and go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. The last chapter that the Apostle Paul wrote in his lifetime. He's in prison. He's going to die at the hands of Caesar Nero. And he says these words, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. 
In the future there is laid up, 2 Timothy 4, 8, for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved, what? His appearing. And then go to Titus, the next book to the right, chapter 2. Titus 2. The Apostle Paul tells us that grace teaches us how to live. Titus 2, it instructs us, verse 12, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, Titus 2.12, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope, Titus 2.13, that's what the second coming is. It's the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. If you're interested, Bible students, this is a verse that calls Jesus God. Jesus is called our great God and Savior. He's appearing again in glory, and we're to look for that blessed hope. He's the one, verse 14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then one more is 2 Peter all the way near Revelation chapter 3, 2 Peter 3. Peter's talking about the last days and mockers that will come, 2 Peter 3, 3. He says, first of all, know this, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking and they will be following after their lusts, own lusts, 2 Peter 3, 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Skip down to verse 9, 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow about his promise regarding that coming that was talked about in verses 3 and 4. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? <laughs> not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, that is, in my view, the second coming of Jesus when he judges and saves, saves and judges, will come like a thief, that is, to the world, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we are the church. We're looking for new heavens and new earth and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Would you turn back to Mark 13? So those are a few verses I could give you more about the teaching of the second coming. You'll notice that the teaching of the second coming is a judgment of God He's going to judge the world in righteousness, but before he judges the world, he will rescue his people. Now, there's a debate as to when that will happen. When will the rapture happen? And I'm not going to get into that debate this morning. There's good people who disagree uh, on the timing of the rapture, but here's what I do know uh, solidly, and I, I give you a slew of verses for many of this, but for the sake of time, we as the church have not been appointed to wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 say the same thing. We have not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the church will not experience God's wrath. That's what we know for sure. 
Okay? So before that wrath comes, before the actual judgment comes, the Lord will remove his bride, is my understanding of the Bible. Now we get into Mark 13, verse 1. That's why I told you this will be done in multiple parts. <laughs> Mark 13, verse 1. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Now the, the temple in Israel was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It took probably about 80 years to build it. You guys will remember that in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple the first time, somewhere around 30 AD, he cleansed the temple and they confronted him. And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He was speaking of the temple of his body, not the physical temple. And they said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? Now think with me, mathematicians. If it had been 46 years and it was A.D. 30, add 40 more years when the temple falls and you have the, the calculation. The temple had been, been being worked on for maybe as much as a century. It was completed, actually, historians tell us, in around A.D. 66. And the temple was an incredibly uh, impressive building, but for the Jew... It was the center of their social, political life, and religious life. It was a sense of pride, identity. There are people in Israel today, it's been their goal for the last several decades to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. They have a temple institute right now in Jerusalem. They've rebuilt all of the implements for the temple. They have them all done. You can see some of them when you go to Israel. Right now, they are training priests that they believe go back to the line of Levi, and they are training them to do temple sacrifices. There's even a comment in a recent article somebody gave me that they're showing them how to use modern equipment like mixing machines to do the grain offering. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> Just use a little mixer. <laughs> anyway, this is what they're doing now. They're training Levitical priests. But there's a problem. I think most of you know what the problem is. The temple mount... Control of the Temple Mount, even though Israel became a nation in 1948, reborn after some 2,000 years, and recaptured Jerusalem in 1967 as a peace offering, they gave control of the Temple Mount to the Arabs. And all of us who are Bible students and stuff say, rats and double rats. Why did they do that? Well, it was, a, it was an offering of peace. It was a token. It was an olive branch. And so now, up on the Temple Mount, when you see pictures of Israel and you go to, if you have a chance to go to Jerusalem, if you go up on the Temple Mount, there's two Muslim shrines there. The one with the black roof is called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's actually the holier of the two shrines, according to Islam. And the second one that's just ahead of it is called the Dome of the Rock. That's the one with the golden dome on the top. And so the Jews who are in Israel believe that Solomon's temple that they want to rebuild so desperately that's been leveled for some 2,000 years is supposed to go up there. And so you can understand the tension. They want to build a temple up there, but you have two Muslim shrines up there and control has been given to the Arabs. So there's been a lot of tension up there. A lot of uh, threats and people wanting to bomb the place and you name it. A lot of demonstrations that happen up there. But there's been an interesting book that's come out. It's written by Bob Cornuke. I've mentioned it in past messages. And they call Bob a modern-day Indiana Jones. He's taken some research that's been done by others, and he's piggybacked on the research. And he's making a case that 
The temple in Jerusalem does not belong up on what is now considered the Temple Mount. But he's arguing that it should be just below that area and that that area considered the Temple Mount right now was actually a Roman fortress overlooking the Temple Mount that was down the hill a little bit. By the way, uh, when they talk about the Temple Mount, the rabbis and historians say that the temple precincts took up one-sixth of Jerusalem, so it dominated that whole area. When When you thought of Jerusalem, you just simply thought of the temple. Well, he's made a case, and it's in the book, in the book Temple by Bob Cornuke, if you want to get a copy of it, that the temple should be down the hill a little bit. And that, that what's up there was a Roman fort to overlook things. And if that's true, can you imagine the implications of that? That means that Israel could rebuild their temple tomorrow. My understanding is that Bob Cornuke has had some discussions with people who are in authority in Israel about his findings. I don't know how far that's gone. Actually, Pastor Chris has a history with Bob Cornuke. And he was a police officer previously, right? A detective. So he brought some of those skills to the archaeology side. But anyway, so they were, they were very impressed with it. This, this was everything to the Jew. The building was everything. And so they point out the stones to Jesus. They said, look at the wonderful stones. Look at this incredible building, Jesus. Do you guys remember what impressed Jesus most in the temple the day that he was there? It was a, it was a little widow who gave two mites two coins she gave everything she had jesus didn't care about all the fancy stuff he looked at the heart that's what impressed him most that day but the temple was an impressive structure it is said that the temple looked like a mountain of gold because of its nine massive gates much of the temple's exterior was plated with gold and silver and jeweled sculptures such as the the famous grapevine cluster the size of a man It was adorned with white marble that adorned its upper reaches. Josephus, the ancient historian, wrote, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound with mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it, the temple, appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon it and polluting the roof. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, 5 in height, and 6 in breadth. The rabbi said, He who has not seen Jerusalem in her splendor has never seen a desirable city in his life. It was as if a mountain of white marble was decorated with gold. The temple was an incredible architectural feat, but it also inspired awe in the Jewish mind as the abode of God, the socio-political center of the Jewish universe. It was a place of pride and a place of hope. That's why the next words of Jesus are so startling. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus' prophecy, every stone, there won't be one stone stacked upon another. Now, if you stand at what's called the Wailing Wall today, the Western Wall, and you look up to the Temple Mount, what do you have? Stones, what? Stacked one upon another. Some people say that's a retaining wall. Some people say that was part of the original temple. But how could it be if not one stone would be what? 
left upon another. Just something to think about. Maybe that helps Bob Cornuke's argument. But here's what we have. Jesus makes this prophecy and history tells us that this is exactly what happened to this area. This is no less than a prophecy given by Jesus. And the, the question sh that should arise in our minds is why did Jesus condemn the area? What was going on there that was so wrong? Well, we've already looked at it. When he came and cleansed the temple for what? The second time in his ministry, what did he find? He found an area that he called a den of thieves. He said, you've made my father's house into a den of robbers. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. And he up overturned everything, right? Upset the apple cart. And the, even the Jewish writers of the time say that judgment came upon Israel in AD 70 because of the sin of Israel. And by the way, this is not the first time God did this. He judged Israel in the past. Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies in about 586 B.C. We all know that story. God's done it before. And he did it again because Israel would put other things before God. Instead of bowing to God, they bowed to man and, and to religiosity and to a building instead of to God's glory. And Jerusalem fell and it fell hard Titus Vespasian, the uh, Roman general who came in, who was the son of the original general Vespasian that started this siege, first conquered Jerusalem. When he did, he ordered that the temple be preserved. But it was gutted by a fire set by one of his soldiers. As a result, Titus ordered the whole city and temple to be razed to the ground, a task especially carried out in respect to the temple as soldiers driven by avarice, that means by greed, pulled the stones apart in an attempt to reclaim the melted gold of the building. We, we've just heard a description that it was filled with gold and marble. So you can imagine that when people saw it up in flames and Roman soldiers who probably didn't make a lot of money all of a sudden saw this riches in front of them. Well, they did everything they could to get to everything, every piece of it. And the building was in upheaval. It was a stack of stones. This holy place was left as a whole pile of rubble. And it was destroyed. And that prophecy of debris is still true today. The temple has not been rebuilt since A.D. 70. Yet in our lifetime, since 1967, in the last some 50 years, we've heard talk of a rebuilt temple. That's quite unique. And that's why students of prophecy are watching Israel, not with newspaper eschatology, not, you know, extreme, but but you keep your eye over there because you know it's going to be the center of everything that's happening in the world. Now, if you were one of the apostles and you heard Jesus say that all these stones are going down, what would your question be? I'd have two questions. When? <laughs> when is this going to happen? And what will indicate that it's about to happen so I can make sure I'm not in town? Amen? When you ask the same question, if you had Jesus there and Jesus just made this prophecy, I would be chomping at the bit to get information about what he just said because I know everything he says comes to pass. And I've got family and friends and people I'm concerned about, so I'm going to ask him. Well, you just said everything's going down here. That's so impressive. It looks like it could never fall. Lord, when, when is this going to happen? And as he was sitting, verse 3 on the Mount of Olives, so he's now left the temple area, which is quite picturesque of the glory departing. He was opposite the temple, verse 3, Mark 13. Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. 
Just a side note, two sets of brothers here. Peter and Andrew are brothers. James and John are brothers. And we find out something interesting about the Olivet Discourse or this sermon from the Mount of Olives. Jesus was asked privately by two sets of brothers what all this meant. These are the guys that asked. And, and I'm sure they quickly pulled him aside and said, Lord, we want to know something. Tell us. And here's the question. They said, verse 4, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Very natural question. In light of what he said, we want to know, what, when is this going to occur, Lord? Is there some sign associated or signs associated with it? Now, if you look at Matthew's parallel account, which is one book back, Matthew 24, you'll see how Matthew records the question, which adds a little bit more clarity to it. It's important to see. Matthew 24, Jesus has just predicted the fall of the temple, it being torn down. Matthew 24, 3, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Matthew 24, 3, What will be the sign of what? Your coming and the end of the age. Now in Mark's account, and even in Luke's account, it seems like their question more relates to the immediate uh, you know, future decades within their lifetime. But the way the question is framed in Matthew's account is quite interesting because it says that they asked him about the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Now, you might be asking, well, what do the preterists do with this? Well, the preterists say the end of the age is the end of the Jewish age. What they mean by that is when the temple fell, the Jewish age is over and the church age starts. That's kind of how they get around it. But what's interesting about this word in Matthew 24 or 3, see the word coming there? It's a word called parousia. Here's how it's spelled, and it's an important word that you have in your uh, mind in terms of this study. The word is spelled P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, parousia, or some people pronounce it parousia. The word parousia denotes two things, an arrival and a consequent presence. It's two Greek words, para, which means with, and usia means being. When will you come? When will you be here? It speaks of an arrival and an ongoing presence. Here's an example. Let's say that one of your family members is coming over for Thanksgiving dinner, and they're stuck in freeway traffic, and you said to them, when are you coming? What you mean by that is, when are you going to be here to enjoy dinner with your active presence here? Now, certain family members may call, and you may hope they never come, and I totally understand that. <laughs> Just kidding. We were supposed to love everybody, right? So some of them you may think stay too long, but that's another story. But here, here's the deal. When are, if we said, when are you coming? What we mean is, when are you coming over to the house to enjoy this meal together? That's parousia. It means to come and stay. When is your active presence going to be here? When will you arrive and be here? That is parousia. When will you be uh, arriving? Okay? That's an important word. And then they say, look at verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming? That's their question. One of these things is going to happen. Seems like their question includes the temporal, uh, their lifetime, and far off into the future. Back to Mark 13. This sometimes happens, and I just want to clarify something for you students of the Bible. When you see a discourse given in multiple books of the Bible, 
For example, the discourse of the Olivet Sermon is given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you see the resurrection recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you take the four gospel accounts and blend them to get the full picture. Here's how it works. If you and I walked outside today and we saw an accident on River Road, God forbid, and we saw the color of the car and the details and how the persons reacted and so forth, each of us would bring a different perspective to what we viewed. Our perspectives would be complementary and hopefully not contradictory. We'd each be an eyewitness, but we would tell the story from our perspective or all the things that we retained. When the Gospels show you multiple accounts of a different teaching, your job as a student of the Bible is to blend them and see how they fit together to make the whole of the teaching make sense. Everybody with me? That's how it works. So that you have to see that Matthew's account is not contradictory, it's complementary. There's a little bit more detail given often in some of the Gospels. Some of the Gospels are very succinct. Mark's Gospel is known to be a very succinct, to-the-point Gospel. Bam, 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 bam. Whereas Luke and Matthew take a little bit more time to develop ideas. Both are true. You just get a little bit more detail as you look at the supplementary passages. Everybody understand what I'm saying? This is how you're supposed to interpret the Bible. And, and of course, it's important that you read your Bible and study it so you can get the full picture. So they've asked these questions. Back to Mark 13, verse 5. I'm going to keep you, everybody okay? Do we need to pass any peanuts out? Everybody, everybody good? Okay, I'm going to need about another 10 minutes to do this justice. So hold on. Jesus began to say to them, Mark 13, 5, see to it, they asked, well, what should we look for? See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name. I take that as the name of Jesus, Mark 13, 6. And they'll be saying, I am. He is in, in italics or in parentheses. It's added by the translators. They'll literally be saying, I am. And they will mislead many. Notice the word many. Many will come and many will be misled. Shouldn't be surprising to us. We, we know in the first century many false Christs and false messiahs rose up from the time Jesus died till the fall of Jerusalem. They would come into the temple. They would claim that they're the Messiah. And of course, they were all proven to be false. In 1 John 2.18, we're told that even now, many antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. We know up and through our day, we've had people claim to be the Messiah. We've had David Koresh claim to be Jesus Christ. We had the whole incident with Jim Jones, right? And even on the Bible Answer Show not that long ago, we had a caller call, and she said, you, you've all got it wrong about the second coming of the Lord. And we're like, what? Where's she going with this question? She said, it's all wrong. It's a lie. And we're like, we're just hearing her out. And she said, I am. And we're like, what? What'd she say? I didn't know that the Messiah was female. But anyway... And she said, I am, a couple of different times. That's when we, <laughs> this is a sign we have in the radio program. No mas. Cut them off. Put them on hold. She, she was saying she was the Messiah. Well, this has happened all throughout history. In fact, there's whole movements today that are trying to teach you that you're God. Did you know that? You just have to realize your deity and all your problems will be gone. 
you'll lose weight. You won't binge shop anymore. Just realize there's a deity in you. Oh my goodness. That's, well, yeah, if you have the Lord Jesus in you, that, that's one thing. But not thinking that you are God, right? That's the oldest lie in the book. And so Jesus said, here's what to look for. There's going to be a lot of false messiahs. Here's my question. I just was thinking about this. I was thinking, he says this to the apostles. If it's only for them, do you think that someone coming up claiming to be Jesus would fool them? They'd spent three and a half years with him. Slept under the stars. Do you think if somebody came up and said, I'm Jesus, they would go, oh, really? No, they knew him pretty well. I think this is for a wider audience. Wouldn't you agree? When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, wars have always happened. I was listening to a pastor here on the way into the uh, church, and he was saying, there's some, I think there's wars in 65 countries right now. You know, I'm sure a lot of you experience wars and rumors of wars on Black Friday. <laughs> it was a black day for some of you, a dark day. I mean, are people nuts or what? What is going on? I understand going shopping. I understand that could be fun. But don't duke it out with somebody if they got the last article that you wanted, all right? Calm down a little bit. Life's a little bit more than that. Wars, rumors of wars. That could be our time. It could be the time of the apostles. He says the end is not yet. Keep going. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. We know we've had a lot of earthquakes lately maybe even an increase of earthquakes, but during the lifetime of the apostles, there was a major earthquake in Laodicea. And then Mount Vesuvius exploded and buried Pompeii in lava while people were shopping on Black Friday. <laughs> and they were frozen in the lava. Some of you guys have seen these pictures. They actually have the pictures of people carrying their Gucci purse. Forever captured in the lava flow of Mount Vesuvius. Yeah, it happened back in their day, and of course it's happened in our day. There's been a lot of earthquakes. Jesus says, verse 8, he tells us about uh, the beginning of birth pangs. He says there's going to be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. I was listening to the same pastor who said, uh, each night that we go to sleep, there's millions of people that go to sleep hungry every night. Some 40,000 babies that die every day in our world. I think we ought to be counting our blessings, don't you? People are living in desperate times and in misery in other places that we often don't want to look at. But he says all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The image here is of a woman in labor. Of course, when she gives birth, she forgets about her labor. That's what another part of the passage or another verse says. For the joy of the child that's coming to the world. But, but the, these things will be like birth pangs and it, and it may express intensification before the birth, before the new life or the new beginning. And so Jesus says, be on your guard for they will deliver you to the courts. This happened to the apostles. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake. The apostle Paul did that as a testimony to them. And the gospel must uh, first be preached to how many? All the nations. Some people argue that's the Roman world and it was accomplished by the apostles. But I, I'm not sure that that can be uh, held up. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be anxious before about what you are to say. 
But whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, addressed the Sanhedrin. They took note of that, of him being with Jesus. He had boldness and wisdom. And then it gets uglier. It says, brother will deliver brother to death. And a father, his child, children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Now, did, did this happen during the fall in AD 70? It's possible. But this is an extreme thing, don't you think? For you to betray a family member to death either means you really hate the gospel and you hate Christ, or it means your life is being threatened. But we do know this. There have been some people, and by the way, all over the Muslim world, they're saying that people who are in Islam are having dreams about Jesus being verified by very reputable sources. And people who are in Islam are coming to Jesus in great numbers just by having dreams of Jesus without even the help of a missionary. Very interesting. But you guys know that if someone who's involved in Islam converts and a family member finds out and is extreme, we've had some stories where they've actually literally killed the child. And so there is precedent for for this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, man, family members are going to turn on each other. Children rising up against parents and having them put to death. Scary stuff. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. That word saved could mean delivered. It could speak of the rapture there. Enduring to the end, not we don't work for our salvation. So I don't think the idea here is that you hang on to the end and your soul will be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we're saved by grace. So enduring to the end, I think, speaks of a difficult time where the Lord will come and rescue the church by rapture. And then the final verse for this afternoon. But when you see, Lord, what's the sign? He's going to give more. But here's a, here's a primary sign. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea, key word, flee to the mountains. Part of the reason Jesus is telling this is so people will get out at the proper time. What would be the sign? When should we not be in town? Here's the deal. Look for the abomination of desolation. Now if I asked you, explain to me the abomination of desolation. Somebody, some of you would know, have an idea, and some of you would say, what? Well, here's the deal. This is found, this exact language is found in the Old Testament in Daniel 11. And I know I'm keeping you over, but please turn there. Daniel 11, I'm going to show you the verse, and I'll tell you the quick history regarding this. Daniel 11, we're going to look at verse 31. The word abomination is a Greek word that speaks of something detestable, foul. It speaks of an idol or idolatry. Desolation well, how would you define desolation? Something is desolate, what's happened? It's laid waste, there's nothing there. It's empty, gone, devastated. Daniel eleven thirty one. And forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up, Daniel eleven thirty one, the abomination of desolation. Now, this is a prophecy in Daniel 11. Daniel's written at least 500 years before Christ. And a prophecy is given about an event to the future of Daniel that took place at least in one part. This, this is the fulfillment of it. 
There was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he thought he was a god. He thought he was the uh, arrival of the gods. And he was a man of war, and he was going through Israel, and he went into Jerusalem, and he decided to take his wrath out on the people of Israel. This is 168 B.C., so before Christ. He went into the temple. He took a statue of Zeus, the Greek god, put it on the altar of burnt offering, and slaughtered a pig and spread its blood all over the temple area. The Jews called that an abomination that causes desolation because for the Jews, the temple was now defiled, taking swine's blood and doing this sort of thing. So the Jews attempted to cleanse the temple, and this is recorded in what's called the intertestamental books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. They're called apocryphal books. They're not inspired scripture, but they're historical. They're written between Malachi and Matthew. So they record this event, and they say that Antiochus went in there, and he spread the swine's blood, and he was telling the Jews that they couldn't circumcise their children anymore, and there was a battle, and through guerrilla warfare, a, a, a godly priest named Mattathias and his sons uh, rose up against this, this invader. And they, through guerrilla warfare, finally got the enemy out and cleansed the temple. And that's the, the holiday we call Hanukkah. And so here's, here's what happened historically. But Jesus says, look for the abomination of desolation future to his time. That happened in 168 before Jesus ever gave this sermon. So what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes is a foreshadowing of what will ultimately happen in the future. Everybody with me? Now, did it happen at the fall of AD 70 of the temple? Well, in one way it did, because Titus Vespasian went in there. We're told the zealots were in the Holy of Holies where they didn't belong. Only the high priest could go there only once a year, and they were committing murder in the Holy of Holies, and the temple was desecrated. And armies did surround Jerusalem, which is what Luke tells us would happen. And I got to take you there. One more. Luke 21. You got the peanuts back there? Luke 21. All right. Here's, here's the last scripture Pastor Michael promises. So when these armies surrounded Israel around the time of A.D. 70, Jesus did say these words. Luke 21, 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her what? Desolation is at hand. Luke 21, 21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. And Josephus tells us that people, when these things started happening, started leaving the city. They knew Jesus' prophecy, and they were leaving the city. Here's how he describes it, like swimmers swimming away from a sinking ship. It actually did happen. But I still think there's a future fulfillment, and I'll show you why when we do part two of this message. I'll show you how there's a future happening that I think these things foreshadow. And I think armies will surround Jerusalem again. And I believe it will be a cup of trembling for all the nations and God is going to rescue his people. And that's yet future to us. The time, we don't know. The season, perhaps we can know as we look at signs. But uh, that's it for this morning. There you go. All right, I'm glad you came. All right, everybody just take a deep breath. All right, so... 
Part two, next time I'm up here, we'll do part two of I told you everything in advance. But I, do want, I want to close with this. I, I started the message by asking why prophecy? Well, because the Bible's filled with it and you should know your Bible. But number two, because it gives me hope that Jesus is coming again. And he's going to make everything that's wrong right again. And we're going to have a golden age. And that's all ahead of us. And I know it means a lot to those of you who have experienced loss recently. And you're trying to make sense of it. And you're wondering, is there a solid hope of which I can rest and hang my hat on and know that it's true? Well, here you have Jesus, and it's impossible for him to lie. And he told us everything in advance. Why? So we might have hope, but we might also be a prepared people. And I would also say this, a people who's busy about his business. Uh, Shane, we'll forego the closing song. Would everybody stand? Thank you for your patience and for being here today. If you've not met Jesus Christ, I'm just going to encourage you from the bottom of my heart to make today your day when you meet him. He's God. He came down to this earth because he loved you. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose to defeat your mortal enemy, death itself. Because he lives, you can live. But you must place your faith in Jesus Christ, in him alone. Not in good works, not in anything that you can bring to the table, but you just must ask him, Lord, forgive me. It must be something like this. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I want to trust you with all that I am. If I'm going to call you Lord, then I want to follow you. Help me. I'm standing behind a piece of wood, but I'm a man just like you. I have my moments of weakness, my moments when I don't perform as well as I'd like to, don't pray as much as I want to, <laughs> don't act the way I should. I'm not always as patient as I should be. And I, and I look and I, and I sometimes say, Lord, do you, do you really love a guy like me? <laughs> and the Lord says, yeah, Michael, that's why I came. I came because I knew you were imperfect. I knew what I was getting when I signed you up. <laughs> Amen. So be of good cheer, brothers and sisters. He's overcome the world. He did for us what we cannot do. And he loves you. And he wants you to be part of his family. That's why he, if we could put it this way, that's why he postpones his coming. He knew you were coming. I'm glad he didn't come before the late 80s. Because if he did, I was in deep trouble. And sometimes, you know, we, we look at news reports and we say, oh, come, Lord Jesus. And I understand that. And I say it sometimes, too. But then there's other times that I say, Lord, thank you that you've put off your coming so that more precious people can come in. Thank you that you're pa more patient than us. <laughs> Amen? So I just want to encourage you. Be of good cheer. As we go into this Christmas season, let's remember his first coming, no doubt. Let's celebrate but let's also look forward to him coming again. And let's be busy about his business so that when he comes, he will find faith on the earth. He will find people who are faithful to him because he's always been faithful to us.